My name is Richard Morellis, and I want to welcome you to the Prison Post. This is your podcast for conversations surrounding the need to reform prisons from the perspective of formerly incarcerated people, community members, and leaders in the restorative justice movement. The Prison Post will feature an episode every Wednesday with people who are in the fight to restore lives and heal communities. Today, our guest is calling from Los Angeles, California. I was incarcerated with him from April of 2011 until March of 2019. He was released from Soledad in September of this year. He earned a bachelor's degree in sociology while he was incarcerated and a master's degree in humanities. He also holds a certification as a state certified alcohol and drug counselor. His name is Jonathan Barber, and I just want to welcome him. Good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon. Thank you, Richard, for having me on. Yeah, for sure. So how long have you been home now? So today actually marks 90 days. So it's been three months. Loving every minute of it. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I mean, what, what goes to your mind knowing that you spent, how long did you spend in there? So I was incarcerated for just a little bit over 16 years. Just over 16 years. You went in, in what year? 2003. 2003 and got out 90 days ago in 2019. That is correct. And where are you at as we record this interview? So I am located in the great city of Los Angeles. Okay. And 90 days out, how do you feel about that? Life is awesome. I'm, I'm very grateful for this opportunity to uh, start a new chapter in my life. Uh, to a certain extent, it's a very humbling and bittersweet because I know at what cost this second chance came. So I am, I'm fully enjoying it and making sure I maximize uh, the opportunities that come before me. On a day like this, your 90th day, are you out celebrating with someone? Or are you just going about your day? What's, the high, what's going to be the highlight of your day today? So today's my day off. Actually, the highlight of my weekend was on, on Saturday. It was the first time I had an opportunity to meet a lot of people from my mother's side of the family. So I was down at her house. Uh, a lot of the cousins, when I went in, they were toddlers. So now I, I had opportunity to converse with them as adults. I got to sit down and talk with some family elders who I hadn't met before. So I was very blessed to have that. Today was pretty much a relaxing day. I went over to my father's mother's house and uh, I hung out with her for about an hour or so. And, and right now, I guess I'll say today is, is, is a highlight just talking with you. I appreciate that. I appreciate you coming on the show. A uh, quick question, though. What was it like to meet those loved ones? And did they know you were incarcerated? And what was their take on you? you know, what, what was your experience of that? So the family knew where I was at. So there was, there was no hidden secret about that aspect of my return. In regards to how do they receive me, I, I believe they received me favorably. It, it was actually uh, when, when I was asked the question several times by different relatives, do you remember me, that, that was one of those saddening moments because, uh, to be honest, a lot, of, a lot of the time I answered, I was like, no, I don't. Or the, the same answer would be offered if they said, do you know what my name is? That, that, was, that was a sad reality because there it was glaring in, in my face in those moments that it was like, you know what, Jonathan, you've been missing for a long time. You've missed out on a lot. 
Nevertheless, it also was an opportunity to sit there and, and really breathe in a sense of appreciation for the opportunity that is right in front of me. So it was a it was a very enjoyable experience, interesting for sure, but I loved every minute of it. Listening to stories amongst my cousins, especially when they're talking about the little adolescent escapades and and I'm enjoying listening to stories, especially the, the, the ones where they're embarrassing themselves as they uh, recite them. And it, the many of the times as I'm sitting there, listen, I'm just sitting here thinking like, dude, where was I? How did I miss out on these, these fantastic uh, adventures? And, but then I would reground myself and be like, you know what? It's all good. I'm right here. I'm right now. So we got some more adventures ahead of us. So prior to being released, I had been living on a SCTF on a different yard because um, since I was denied parole at my initial hearing, I was eligible to go to a level one facility. So I was transferred off a central yard, which was a level two. And the reason why I bring that up is because when I left the central yard, it was like a pre-release experience. And I had lived at Central for about eight years. You brought up the school. I think that's a perfect analogy. I, I happened to count my years in fours, like high school career. So I always equated my experience at CTF Central as, as being in high school for two years. So for those of you guys in the audience that graduated high school, went through high school, and you can re- recall all the experiences that you had in high school, all the beautiful memories, all the uh, escapades of of uh, stupid uh, adventures that we did, all the beautiful relationships that we created. I did that twice at CTF. I had two high school careers there. So when, when I left Central and, and went down to the South facility, that was an opportunity to experience the, the, the sense of mourning uh, of, of leaving friends behind. And it was also an experience of going to a facility where I, I didn't really know too many people. So I, I, I appreciated that experience because I, I kind of understood, or I, I, I kind of gained an understanding on how it was going to be to be released, um, not being able to speak to the old buddies who, who I had been friends with for so long. So when, I, when it came to the time where I was about to leave South, that prior experience of leaving Central uh, really set in to how I was going to parole from South. So pretty much the night before and even the coming weeks of my release, what weighed heavily on my heart was like, who do I need to talk to? What conversations do I need to have? Who do I want to hang out with? Because in, in, my, in the back of my mind, I, I had this feeling that I, this may be the last time I, I spend some time with these people who, who now at South, I, I d- developed a relationship with, and, and I didn't want to lose that opportunity. So that, that's what I did. I, I, I continued my job as a, as a peer mentor in the rehabilitative programs, well, as, as I have been doing for, for the last two years. I did that throughout the day, but then at nighttime, I 
I, I was hanging out with, with people having some personal conversations, some transformational conversations, and, and, and just having some good old-fashioned fun conversations because I, I, I wanted to remember and cherish the relationships that I had. And I wanted to make sure if I could offer some value to the people that I, I may not see before that, that that opportunity wasn't missed. Did you wait the whole 150 days required before while waiting on the governor's decision? For, fortunately, no. But I, I waited 121 days and that can, that can feel like an eternity for sure. Is that how it felt for you? You know what? The first, the first 100 days was was the cakewalk. Um, as soon as I hit 100 days, the days seemed like they went on forever. When when I initially got found suitable, I entertained the approach that you know what? I'm just going to anticipate being here 100 days, so then that way I don't get anxious. But then a couple of guys who went a week before me to their parole hearing, I, I noticed that they were getting released around like 110, 114 days. And against my best, <laughs> against my best advice, I started to move up my own calendar. And, and, and that just introduced a whole new level of anxiety because as soon as I noticed I was going over 110, 115, I'm just like, oh man, here we go bad news is coming. And when, when they finally, when they finally gave me the, the good news that no action was taken, the remaining 10 days was, was nothing. Cause at least at that point I was able to breathe and I was all like, it's inevitable. I'm walking out the door. That's awesome. So describe that last day up until on your way home. So I was released on a Monday morning. So the night before, I believe it was the second the second football weekend. So I, I, I worked out. I, I needed to work out. I, I, I knew if I didn't work out, I would probably have too much energy and I wouldn't be able to sleep. So I, I made sure I worked out, burned some calories, burned some energy up. At that point, I really wasn't too much into football. I mean, for the past several years, I, I, I would sit down and watch football all day. But I, I really wasn't into football. As I was mentioning earlier, what was more important was just trying to converse with as many people as possible, hang out, offer what I could. So that's that's what I did. I went around, talked to some people. There was a couple of close buddies of mine who, uh, unfortunately, I, and even to this day, I don't understand, they were found suitable, but the governor took their dates and um, they should have been home before me. And over the years, you know, I had good relationships with them. So I, I sat there and talked to those individuals for a couple of hours as well and told them how I appreciated what they've, what they've offered me throughout the years and offered my best hopes and wishes for them. Went back, had, had I believe, ho- hopefully, had a meaningful conversation with my bunkie, uh, encouraging him, ho- hoping that he, he, would, uh, he would find the, the insight that the, the parole board requested of him and made a couple of calls to, to, to my family, making sure all the travel arrangements were in order. And then at that point, shoot, around 10 o'clock at night, I crashed out. 
waiting for the next day to, to, to come upon me. So you were able to sleep when a lot of people, the stories are they couldn't sleep the night before. No, I was good. I, I was knocked out. I did wake up a little bit earlier than normal, but I've always been someone who only sleeps about six hours. So if anything, I, I, I think I woke up like a, a half an hour earlier. Wasn't that big of a deal. So you, you wake up. What do you do? Well, I, I went. I went straight to the C, to the correctional officer, the CO. Asked him, like, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm about to be released. Is it possible to get in this shower? I know the the shower program doesn't open up till eight, but I won't be around at that time." And fortunately, the CO he he was uh, agreeable, so went ahead did all did all my grooming activities and. Rode over to the chow hall real quick to eat, to eat my last fantastic CDCR. Oh wow! Now, <laughs> you, see, you see how long it's been? I can't even. <laughs> Ninety days. You already forgetting how the letters are arranged. Shoot, that's that's hilarious. <clears throat> oh, you know what it was? I had it was it was their breakfast burrito. So it was like scrambled eggs, eggs, and, and a tortilla with some salsa, which you know. It, there's not too much flavor in it, but it's actually one of the better meals. So I went ahead and ate that. Some people were like, man, why are you going to sit here and eat a meal? You can go buy something outside. I said, listen, man, going through R&R is going to take some time. I'm not trying to sit there and be starving as I wait to be released. I said, I need something in my stomach. So I went to that chow. I ate that last chow. And thankfully, as I ate it, I knew that I wouldn't have to eat that food again. Okay, so you get to R&R. You leave the chow hall, you go to R&R. What's R&R? What's the process like? So R&R is the office where the prison facility receives new inmates or they release uh, the inmates. So that's why it's called R&R, receiving and release. At that point, they go through the preliminary process, checking what property I'm taking out, checking all my state blue clothing, giving me clothing that I'm going to parole with. And after they get done with their little process, they'll send those, they'll send the people who are leaving with another correctional officer over to the administration building. So when I left, I did not have clothes sent in because that's one of the things that parolees can do. You can have your clothes sent in. I didn't take that option. I, I decided I was going to parole with just some basketball shorts and a t-shirt, and which I brought with me from the South facility. And the cold part is, you know, I was released in September, which is, you know, borderline summer, fall. It, it, it had been hot for several weeks. And lo and behold, the day that I did, the day that I'm paroled and the day I decided to wear t-shirts and a short, it decides to rain. So I thought that was ironic. And as we were walking over to the administration building, there was three of us that were getting parole that day. And it was, a, it's a nice little walk. It's, a, it's about like a quarter mile walk over there. And you can't take a car for transportation. You have to walk on this part of the facility. And one particular uh, parolee, he, he was just sitting there bickering, complaining, like, can't we take a car? I can't believe I'm getting my pro clothes wet. And I'm just sitting here thinking, like, wow, you're going home 
and you're just complaining, where is the level of gratitude? I sat there with my head, head held high, clothes getting soaking wet, not even, not even worried about anything. We get over there to the administration building, get processed out. It's still pouring. And the administration building, i never seen it. And the cool part is, for years, I've walked through the corridors where I pass it, but we only see one door. So we never actually see what it looks like from the inside of it. It's actually a nice little building. And lo and behold, I had about like three or four buddies that worked in the actual administration building. So I had an opportunity to, to converse with them for a few moments. And then when the CEO got us done, we headed back to R&R, grabbed our last remaining property, got in the van, took off down to the parking lot where they, our rides were awaiting us. And um, as soon as we rolled up, what was kind of funny was my my father, he's a... Uh, He's parked inside the, the state facility. And when you are on the state grounds, you're not allowed to take photos. Apparently, he, he wasn't a, aware of that. So he, he's sitting there clicking away, taking photos. So as soon as we rolled up the sergeant, <laughs> it was like, hey, man, you know, you can't be taking photos. Fortunately, both of them had good dispositions. And basically, the sergeant just asked him to to erase the camera. My father did that fairly quickly. And at that point, once the sergeant was satisfied, me and my father, we uh, had our, our moment of embrace and, and got in the car and, and just started to drive on off. What was that like for you to have that moment of embrace? You know what? I couldn't really enjoy it. And, and this is, and this is the reason why I said that one, I was sitting there cause I was still caught up with the, the, the picture thing, but, but the, the other, the other aspect of it was, in the back of my mind, I'm like, let's get in the car and let's drive it as far as away from this place as quickly as possible. Right. So you just want to get out of there. Man, I was like, let's go. <laughs> I'm like, shut the door. Let's get out of here. Get on the freeway. There's no take backs. They ain't calling me back. Let's get out of here. Let's go. So my my, my moment of, of, of content I started to set in as soon as we turned onto the freeway. What was that like for you? How long had it been since you've been on the freeway? Well, I've been on the, so I had a lot of medical issues. I I just happened to have my rotator cuff repaired a few months prior. So I was going back and forth on the freeway uh, several times in uh, this, this summer. So it wasn't, I I heard a lot of guys in the past, you know, when they first get on the freeway, they may experience some type of motion sickness. I didn't have that because I already got used to being in the car, but what I really enjoyed was it was the first time in a long, long time that one, I was in a position where I could actually look straight out of a window, which was nice. I didn't have to look out the side of a van watching the, the, the horizon go past me. I was able to look out the window. And in addition to being able to look straight out the window, I didn't have to look out some bars. I can actually look at the horizon with a clear view, not through some type of filter like Swiss cheese. And I was able to roll down the window on my own. So I, I really appreciated the luxury of, of sitting in the front seat, looking, enjoying the view and being able to control the, the, the windows, the airflow, the radio, all, all that. My first day was pretty, pretty uh, basic. 
me and my father, the plan was just because we had to drive from Solidag all the way to L.A. So that, that was going to be a four and a half hour drive. That's what we were anticipated as long as we, we beat the traffic. So on the way home, you know, we had some conversations about I, I, I told my father, I was like, if you have any questions, go ahead. I'm an open book. Did he have anything pressing that he wanted to ask or any, any issue that wanted to be addressed? Of course, when you put people on the spot like that, they tend to forget or nothing comes to mind. <laughs> so like that, com- that that conversation didn't really go anywhere. But we talked about some some, some of my goals and aspirations on, on what I had planned. He asked me where I wanted to go. Now, you, we're driving from Soledad to L.A., so the selection of restaurants is not going to be that much. You, you're looking at pretty much different types of fast food places. So knowing how my dad is uh, selective in, in his, uh, his food, I, I told him to go ahead and pick some place. We, we decided to go to Subway. So I, I had a, a foot-long turkey sandwich. It was nice actually having turkey that didn't uh, taste super processed. And some bread that was actually not stale, and the and, <laughs> and vegetables yeah. that were actually crunchy. So I enjoyed that meal, and then we continued to proceed down to LA. Once we got into the Santa Monica area, we we started to hit traffic, and you know my father he kept asking, he's like, you know, does LA look any different? And and for the most part, I said no. Nah, you know, LA is pretty much the same. You can you can tell there's there's a lot more people that have moved into the city, especially with the constructions of a lot of a lot of apartments now because they're deciding to tear down existing buildings and to, to build four story high apartments to try to create more living space for folks, um, which increases the traffic. So. As we're driving on the 10 freeway, I, I tell him, I said, you know what? I said, I, I'm kind of over L.A. at this point because the, dra- the traffic's horrendous. GMAP and other apps that help people, help drivers find uh, uh, alternative routes have destroyed all the, the secret uh, side routes. So you can't even you can't even uh, 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 drive around the traffic now. So, so like I was telling my dad, I said, you know, I'm kind of over this. This is this is ridiculous. Yet. With all that going on, I, I was still enjoying myself coming back home. And who was waiting for you at home? Oh, we just rolled. Him and I just rolled up to, to his house. And we didn't, we didn't go on. Like, like, as I was mentioning earlier, by the time we got back, it was like 6 o'clock. I wasn't going to have um, – I wasn't going to request him to drive anywhere extra. You know, he already been driving for so long. So we, we just pretty much had dinner, sat, sat down, talked some more. Watched uh, uh, Monday Night Football and uh, call it a day. So, so currently, I'm I'm a drug counselor at a 35 man residential substance abuse treatment program. Um, I'm a primary counselor, so I have anywhere between six to 12 clients, depending on how busy we are. I, I help them become clear on on what their issues are. If it's either substance related, mental health related, trying to find some solution, trying to help them gain clarity on what type of man they want to be and, and, and assist them in getting to that point. So while we're having the podcast interview, you happen to receive a call from your work. What was, what was going on right there? Yeah. So, you know, part of working in a 35 man residential facility 
it is often a, a 24-7 job. What I mean by that is, you know, we got men who are living there, going through some, some type of substance abuse issue or some kind of mental health issue. So there may be times where whoever's on staff needs to call a client's caseworker. So that's that's what happened right there. I had a client who had some important business he had to attend to, and my coworker wanted to make sure that, the guy was able to do it and, and what what was wanted and needed to make sure that the guy was able to fulfill his request and and, and be safe and not relapse. Like I said, I I, I, I enjoy I enjoy the job. I, I anticipate it and and I'm always making sure that we help the men get to where they want to go, man. And how does uh how does somebody come out of prison after a fifteen to life sentence? serving over 16 years, and within 90 days, you're already working as an alcohol and drug counselor. I was really fortunate enough. You were, you were part of a team of very excellent men who, I, who I'm very proud to be a part of that are committed to sowing value into other people's lives, They're committed to rebuild the communities that we helped destroy, committed to to helping men and women become the people that they most desire to be. And a, a part of that journey, you and I and, and some other men were fortunate enough to become alcohol and drug counselors. And some of the men before before us got out and they continued doing the work. So when I came out, because of the work they'd done, it, it made me being able to get employed a lot easier and, and my buddy Johnny Howe and another buddy uh, Huff who, who happened to work at a clinic down in Watts were willing to uh, to give a good recommendation for me and I was able to get an interview and, and ultimately get a job. It, it's very gratifying to, to be able to get out after so long and, and to step into a job, one, just because it's a, a validation of the effort that I have put into becoming a counselor. And also it's, it's, it's a step in the right direction of me becoming independent and not reliable on, on my loved ones. And lastly, just being able to, to give back, being able to, to satisfy all those components is, is very rewarding. So in 2003, I was I was the driver in a fatal DUI auto collision. At the time, I was an alcoholic and addict. I was a very selfish individual. I was a criminal, and, and the way that I lived my day was basically trying to figure out a way to to get high, get get intoxicated to hang out with other fellow individuals who like doing the same thing I did. And ultimately that's what I did that night. And unfortunately because of my selfish actions, I, I ultimately destroyed a family and killed an innocent person. After, after the actual fatal collision, I wasn't. I wasn't uh, authentically uh, remorseful. Uh, there was a there was a large disconnect uh, between what happened and personal responsibility. And what I mean by that was one, as I mentioned earlier, I was a selfish individual. So my my natural 
uh, position was, how, how am I going to save myself? Uh, what exasperated that position was also the fact that I was so intoxicated that evening that I was blacked out and didn't recall. Those two factors really created a disconnect in regards to my personal responsibility. And, and, and unfortunately, it took years for me to, to resolve that immature perspective. What I, what I did know was that I, I was sorry, but I didn't really understand what contrition meant uh, at that point. Um, and unfortunately, I, I fought out the case for a long time and, and caused the, the victim's family more uh, turmoil because of my selfishness. Um, finally, in 2008, I was convicted. Then I was sentenced 15 years to life. When I went to CD, CDCR, I, I was slowly trying to come come to terms on what happened. Still, still being selfish. Still trying to figure out how how am I going to get out of this? Not not so much how is the family going to uh, live without their loved one? How are they going to adapt? It was still all about me. As the years ticked on. And as I was talking to friends and family, as as I was noticing how they were moving on, how they were hitting special milestones in their lives, like weddings, like uh, uh, employment, like graduations, even some of the the, the the trials and tribulations like divorce, all, all those experiences that are anticipated with life. As I noticed that my loved ones were doing this, I actually came across a television show uh, called uh, Parenthood, and it was uh, it was about a family of four siblings and two parents that they had a loving family as well. And throughout the years, as I watched this, they would you would see the, those precious moments that families go through. And what I noticed was the combination of one of my personal relationships. As I watched them grow, I watched this TV family grow, I, I started to envision the, the victim's family and, and, and I started to, to realize that there was a lot of things that they were missing out on. And that really started to soften my, 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 my heart. That really, that really hit hard to me. I, I used to just sit in my cell uh, unbeknownst to anyone else, but I, I, I would be, I'd be teared up watching some of the stuff, tears of joy, tears of sadness, depending on what, what was being displayed in the show. But I kept every time I would watch that family, I kept envisioning the victim's family, and that was them. And the, and and those experiences was what I robbed them all. And that really hit home. That really, that really made a point. It really made me want to get get my things right. Really, really wanted me to uh, uh, figure out. How did I get to this point? How did I cause so much destructions? Because I figured if I did that, I would I, I would ensure that I wouldn't do that anymore. So uh, around 2010, I, I would say that process started. It wasn't just an epiphany. It was an evolution. Fortunately, around that same time, I was transferred to, to, to CTF and Solidad, and it, which was a lower level at the time. So it was a level two. I came from a level three yard. And one of the first things that people told me when I got there was like, Hey man, don't, don't really trip about uh, prison politics. Uh, don't worry about the things that 
we used to have to abide by when you were on a level three or a level four. You know, people here, this is a this is a life of your folks are trying to go home. Just do you. And and that statement, just do do you it was like a permission statement. Like, you know what, it's time, it's time to get to work. It's time to, to really figure out what, what, what's going on with myself inside. So, um, the transfer, watching the show, watching, watching my friends and family grow up, all that happened around the same time. I got introduced to several different groups like criminals and gang member, anonymous CGA, Gogi, getting out by going in various 12 step groups like AA, NA. I was a part of a a group that helped some of the incarcerated students get their college books called help. The higher education library project help. That was a, that was a beautiful group because I was able to, to, to help guys by tutoring them. There was just a wide range of groups that, that really started to impact my, my, my life because they would introduce me to new principles, new ways of living that I, I hadn't been introduced to before. Or if I was, I just wasn't willing to entertain it. And so I, I started to apply those lessons and insights to my life. Around 2014, that group that I was mentioning earlier where you were involved with, we, we started to work to get our alcohol drug counseling and we went through a supervised training where we used the Cornerstone Leadership for Life curriculum, which I think was a, a pretty intense experience where we had to prepare to deliver the workshop and we had to train in front of cameras and receive feedback from peers and that's a very humbling experience, especially if, if one is willing to actually entertain the, the feedback that, that their peers are offering. And, and uh, I, I remember one particular comment that to this day still sticks with me that our buddy Ted Gray said after I delivered the, my, my lesson, he just sat there, he dropped his pen and looked at me and subtly just said, I don't think you like people. Throughout my whole life, I've always been a social person. I thought I was a, a person that uh, could entertain uh, various uh, sets of people from all walks of life. I, I always uh, esteemed myself of having a whole bunch of different social circles of random people. And uh, when he said that, I, that completely took a shot at my my, my ego, but just uh, my life history. And, I, and I'm just sitting here like, what the hell are you talking about? I don't like people, man. That's, that's all I ever done. But it, it, it stood out to me because in the moment I, I understood, I started to understand what he was offering is that just a lot of times I... I I would say that I would pretend that I like people, but I was actually just using them to my own selfish end. So over the years, I, I consider that I, when I'm at my best, I'm, I'm always checking in with myself when I'm in conversations with folks and, 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 and being real, trying to become authentic. Like, well, what's my purpose in this conversation? Am I in it because I actually like and care about this person or am I in it because I'm getting something out of it. Am I, am I, am I entertaining this, this conversation because of the admiration or the acceptance, the sense of belonging uh, that I'm receiving more so than what I'm sowing into someone else's life. And, and, and so that was, a, that was another, another epiphany that, that I had. And, 
the combination between the other things that I mentioned earlier, all those really laid the groundwork for what type of man I wanted to become. I want, I wanted to be a person who was, was, was for other people. I wanted to be a person who uh, was intentional in, in what his purpose was, which was uh, building up the community and trying to leave an authentic uh, legacy. One, one that is built on compassion and, and hope. And this, in this process is still growing as many times I fall, but I haven't failed because failure only only means you quit. And I refuse to quit because I want to be the best man I can be. That's great, Jonathan. Would you say there, there was one moment? I mean, you talked about a, a few moments there with, with Ted or, or the TV show. But was there some type of principle that really stuck with you? I had, I had a conversation with the rabbi, the, the, the Jewish chaplain. And one day we, we were facilitating a class called Choices for Life. And he, he asked the group, he was like, what's the difference between, or actually he asked the group, is there a difference between simple and easy? And I'm listening to him ask this question and I'm trying to come up with my own answer at the same time. And it, of course the, the, the audience, they're like, no, it's all the same. And, you know, we're, we're playing semantics, but sometimes semantics offer some real value. So what he was offering is, is that, yeah, there is, you know, a lot of times in life we come across some, some serious situation and we confuse the two terms simple and easy. And in, in reality, a lot of times the, the, the solution is simple. You know, if, if you got a substance abuse issue and you want to solve the problem, the answer is simple. Stop using. The question is, is that easy? A lot of times the simple solution is not easy. So we have to be willing to, one, accept that, that, you know what, we know what to do. Now the question is, are we willing to take the necessary stops and endure the process to actually get to the end? That was a powerful, that was a powerful lesson for sure. And I, and I bring that, I bring that up because I'm actually going to preface the first lesson that came to mind when you answered the question. Another principle that comes to mind is that violence begets violence. I learned it while I was training to become a nonviolence trainer under the, the philosophy of Dr. Martin Luther King. And it's a simple, it's a simple maxim, you know, if, if you are violent, you're going to create a violent reaction. And when I use the term violence, I'm talking about, I'm talking about physical, I'm talking about non-physical, being aggressive verbally, being emotionally damaging to, to people around us, whatever it is, violence begins violence. And so I, I try, I try hard through through my days to to act in accordance to Dr. King's principle of nonviolence and, and treat everyone with the level of respect and adhere to the golden principle. Treat treat others as you would like to be treated. That's great. I appreciate you sharing today. And you had to go before the parole board. What was the biggest difference between how you thought when you went in? versus how you think today and what's the biggest difference between your thinking back then versus your thinking today? So in the past, I was very willing to fixate 
on the reasons why I shouldn't be responsible to the results that I was receiving. One of the jargon terms that we use inside it, we call that operating from a victim perspective, like woes me, the world is happening uh, around me, it's happening to me. And it's a very, it's a very disabling perspective. It's uh, it's, it, it doesn't empower an individual. So in the past, I was very willing to place blame on external things. It was a way for me to appease my ego to feel good because I, I didn't, I didn't want to be responsible for the results I was getting because ultimately the, res- the results that I was getting was not what I desired. Today, the way that I think is that I actively try to identify the contributions that I have for the situation I find myself in. Granted, the situation that I find myself in may not be something that I uh, prefer, yet the difference is when I entertain that perspective of, of responsibility, I'm able to feel empowered because I can see opportunities in front of me, which I, in the past I hadn't because I would be tunnel vision, so fixated on trying to make sure I place blame other places. I, I think the latter perspective is helpful when going to the board because it allows, it, it allows a life for a prisoner like myself um, an opportunity to account for what they did. It's a slight distinction. It's 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 very it's a very thin line. Like being able to describe what exactly was going on with you at the time of the crime, yet not sit there and sound like you were trying to place blame on those factors. And the and the commissioners, they're trained to do it. They're very good to 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 reading that distinction. One, just by the words that are spoken by the person who's sitting in front of them, and also two, by the unsaid. There's just the way that they presence themselves in front of the commissioners, uh, the way that they they behave when they hear follow-up questions. What's actually on paper, meaning like how have they been living in their prison uh, experience? Do they have rule violations, 115, 128s? Have they been contributing to the community, meaning uh, have they been participating in, in self-help groups? Have they been donating to outside causes? Like basically, are they, live, are they walking, living amends? So today I... I take the perspective that I'm empowered. I have the power to shape my perspective. I can relate to any given situation, no matter how wonderful it is, no matter how tedious it is. In the moment, I, I have the choice to choose the attitude on on, on how I'm going to face it. And, and because of that, I'm able to, I can, I can find value in every moment. And, and that is liberating. <laughs> Most definitely, it's liberating. <laughs> It, it, especially when you have to sit in lines of uh, uh, diff- uh, various social service agencies or on the phone for for hours waiting for the DMV to to listen to your request or not getting hired after countless interviews or your probation officer or your parole officer doesn't grant your request to travel the the perspective that I that I think is useful is is one that is most beneficial for sure. Let's do a couple of fill in the blank questions. Okay. Prison to me was a place where 
I grew up. The worst thing about prison was? Being away from family and friends. The reason why someone wouldn't want to go to prison is? Because that means you hurt somebody else. The greatest thing about being incarcerated was? Self-discovery. You're one of the 1% or less of guys who gets a master's degree while in prison. How did you do that? And why was that important to you? First and foremost, that that wouldn't have been an option if it wasn't for the support I had of my father. He he has been a number one supporter through all the trials and tribulations I've dragged him through. I I had uh, several different uh, failed attempts at college prior to this life crime. And yet he sat here and was willing to endure the financial obligations to see that I actually accomplished my aspirations of one, getting a bachelor's degree, and then two, getting a master's degree. So that made it possible um, for the for the audience out there when you're incarcerated. You do have the opportunity as an inmate to get a associate's degree from a junior college. Anything after an associate's, meaning that you, you got to go to a four-year institution and beyond, you're at the mercy of the institution, one, for just uh, uh, in regards to the correspondence programs requirements, but then also the, the financial obligations. So I had to make sure I had some kind of access to computers. And unfortunately, pr- prisons are basically stuck in the 1970s. And so they're not readily available. I was able to figure it out with the support of a lot of different staff. And we were able to, uh, I was able to graduate last December. What kind of master's degree was it? So I graduated from Cal State Dominguez. The the correspondence program, unfortunately, best of my knowledge is that it's being phased out, but it was called the Hux program. It was a humanities program for, for any student who wanted to do it correspondently. When you major in humanities, you have to pick a a focus. It could be either art, music, philosophy, history. So within the humanities degree, I focused on history. So I wrote wrote my thesis on Governor Ronald Reagan and his governorship and how his dog whistle politics, a.k.a. coded racial rhetoric, how it laid the foundation for mass incarceration. I thought it was a good argument. Time will tell. Right on. Congratulations. Thank you. So, Jonathan, wrapping it up here, man, I so appreciate you sharing your story. What's your message to those family members out there who have a loved one who received 15 alive or 25 alive? You know, what's your message for them so they can be able to live on a different plane while while in prison? Hands down, the the support of loved ones is 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 imperative very imperative to to personal transformation in my opinion for the loved ones out there it does take a level of discipline and and patience compassion and empathy i strongly encourage the audience to be loving towards them Um, with that being said that doesn't mean to enable their bad behaviors unfortunately there may be times or there may come a time where the relationship may have to be reevaluated and it may have to be severed Hopefully that doesn't become a reality. But with that, with that said, the men inside, 
They need they need love. They need encouragement. It's a very lonely place inside prison. So so knowing that someone on the outside is is still there thinking about them, it, it, it breeds hope because it can be a very dark place inside. So for the audience, to answer your question, Richard, is just to keep loving the men as best as they can. Is transformation possible in this day and age of prison politics? Absolutely. Transformation is possible at any moment. The the question is, is someone willing to ask themselves the difficult questions? Are they willing to ponder the values and beliefs that they are holding in the moment and answer the question, are these values, beliefs getting me to the place where I say I want to be? And sometimes when that answer is no, it's challenging because We've been holding those values and beliefs for so long to to get off of them, to get rid of them. It may breed questions on why was I sitting here wasting my life? Why, Why did I invest so much into this? And some people may not want to actually explore that that line of thought because it, it can be very unflattering. It can, it can be very saddening. There's a level of grief and mourning that goes into that. But if a man or woman is willing to endure that, the other side of that process is is a level of freedom that very few men or women ever, ever experience. So I encourage people to take that courageous step, be willing to, 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 to have the faith knowing that I, I may not know exactly where, where that first step is at, but I'm going to take it anyway, knowing that ultimately at the top of the staircase is the goal, the vision that I want to achieve. And our, one of our ultimate hopes is to be able to share these interviews with, with our brothers and sisters who are still incarcerated. A few final words. What would you say to the currently incarcerated family? Well, to the men and women that are behind the walls first, you're not forgotten. I, I know for myself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put Richard, I'm going to put you in, in this conversation and the other men that I know, that we, we think about you guys. We're working to try to help you guys get out. We're trying to deliver programs and services that are conducive to your personal transformation and, and your reintegration to society. So you're not forgotten. That's the first thing. The, the second thing is I hope that you guys will adopt a sense of urgency and what I mean by that is it's time to get real. It's time to get to work. So let's get it done. The community needs you. Your family needs you. Your friends need you. We need you out here. Thank you, Jonathan. Is there, do you have any final words that you'd like to share? Thank you for the opportunity. Um, I really appreciate the experience to speak to you, to, to put some of the things that I found valuable uh, out to the public. Oh, hopefully they may find some value in it and, and hopefully uh, someone's life is improved by it. Thank you for listening to The Prison Post, a production of The Crop Organization. We'll be sharing more stories from the world of prison reform and restorative justice, so please join us. You can listen to The Prison Post on all major podcasting platforms. Subscribe to our video cast on YouTube and like us on Facebook at The Prison Post and at Creating Restorative Opportunities and Programs.
Thank you for using Global Tail Link.